Welcome to OCDQ Radio, a podcast from OCDQ Blog. Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQ Radio is a vendor neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines, including data governance, master data management, and business intelligence. OCDQ Radio is produced and hosted by Jim Harris, the blogger in chief at Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality. OCDQBlog.com. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, I am joined by a special guest. William McKnight is the president of McKnight Consulting Group. William is an internationally recognized authority in information management. His consulting work has included many of the global 2000 and numerous mid-market companies. His teams have won several best practice competitions for their implementations and many of his clients have gone public with their success stories. His strategies form the information management plan for leading companies in various industries. William McKnight is a very popular speaker worldwide and a prolific writer with hundreds of articles and white papers published. William is a distinguished entrepreneur and a former Fortune 50 technology executive and software engineer. William McKnight provides clients with strategies, architectures, platform and tool selection, and complete programs to manage information. William McKnight, welcome to OCDQ Radio. Thank you, Jim. It's great to be with you. We are really excited to have an opportunity to talk to you today, William, because you have just published a new book, Information Management. Strategies for Gaining a Competitive Advantage with Data. With that awesome-sounding title, can you give us a quick synopsis of the book? Absolutely. There's just a lot coming at people that are in IT today and people that manage the corporate information asset. There's a lot of opportunity there for moving data into this platform or that platform. We hear a lot about big data. Yet at the same time, our legacy systems are improving all the time, and they're getting bigger as well. And so there's just a lot of choice out there for information architects in terms of where to put data and how to go about doing it. And it's so important that we do it right. Making these smart decisions up front provide a lot of great leverage for a successful long-term program. And so uh, what I'm providing is a lot of information that's the big picture as well as the small picture on how to make these decisions smartly and get going down the right path with your information. One of the big pictures that's becoming more of a picture for everyone nowadays is really starting to understand the value of information. It used to be a bit more of an esoteric topic, but you make the point in the opening of your book that no matter what business you are in, you are in the business of information. That's right. No matter what industry you're in and where you stand in that industry, what you compete on today in the modern competitive landscape is your information. It has to do with having more information, having better information, and more well-performing information than competitors. I frequently take a look at company strategy, and there's hardly an element of company strategy these days that doesn't have to do with give me more or better or quicker information so that we can make better decisions here. It's truly where companies are competing today. I definitely agree that no matter what business you're in, you're in the business of information. A lot of the examples that we get come from companies that were born in the information age. And the example that you use in the beginning of your book is Amazon. 
Every time you make a purchase on Amazon, you receive suggestions of other products that you might like as well. And if you make an additional purchase based on those recommendations, then that's a return on the investment that Amazon put into their information. And that's an example of the business of information. However, it's not limited to just companies that were born in the information age. So can you provide us with some examples from other types of businesses or industries? Oh, absolutely. There's so many examples. Amazon's a great example, but some people could look at that as sort of unattainable for me and this mid-sized company, or it's a new era company, and we're not. We're an insurance company, healthcare company, whatever. It's been around a while, so maybe the same rules don't apply, but I would argue that the same rules do apply. You can imagine what Amazon would be like if they had a boring web page where they never offered you anything else. I go to the Amazon page, and it just draws me in. I'm there for a while. I'm clicking around, and ultimately, we'll purchase something, probably. But the same idea holds true in so many other industries. If you think about telecommunications and the social network within the telecommunications, who calls who, and who's connected to who, and why, and the implications of that upon the customer's importance to the company. If you think about retail and your last purchase, how does your last purchase play in, but how does your 10 to 100 purchases play in previous to that? And if the company doesn't have that level of information on you, it does have that level on so many other people that are similar to you according to certain characteristics. And it can then impute that profile upon you and then treat you accordingly until you've developed that long profile with them. And so information management is about collecting that information so you can make these smart decisions that truly companies are competing on today. In your book, you say that information is the value associated with data, and that information is data under management that can be utilized by the company to achieve goals. Your book is really focused on helping people bridge that divide in order to solve business problems. Yeah, that's right. Data that just flows through the organization that never gets picked up and stored someplace, number one. And secondly, it maybe gets stored, but it never gets used. Well, that's useless. We need to turn data into active information that actually can be utilized to achieve real business goals. If we're driving our information towards something that's ultimately not interesting to the business and doesn't drive whatever the business goals might be, return on investment, for example, lower total cost of ownership, domination within a certain spectrum of business, etc. If we're not ultimately doing that, then our information management efforts are ultimately wasted. And so while my book covers a lot of ground in terms of all the different kinds of platforms, Hadoop, NoSQL, in-memory, columnar, appliances, master data management, etc., I don't put it out there because these things don't have value propositions. They ultimately do. And what I encourage companies to do, especially companies that are mid-sized and larger, they should be embracing a lot more probably than they are. They probably think they're already in a sea of chaos, but the business competition dictates that you continue to move forward while you're at the same time potentially shoring up what you've got. But you have to keep moving forward and information right now is the modern gold of the organization. And so the book is really about caretaking that gold. You're listening to OCDQ Radio a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines from the Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality blog produced by Jim Harris. Visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast to find ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio and get links to the blog post summaries of every episode. You'll also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, 
if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you would like to discuss sponsorship opportunities. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast for more information about OCDQ Radio. And now, back to the show. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we are talking with William McKnight, author of the new book, Information Management, Strategies for Gaining a Competitive Advantage with Data. William, just before the break, we were talking about a bridge between data and information that has to be architected so that we can journey across and achieve a particular business goal. And in the book, you emphasize that information management is nothing more than the continuous activity of architecture. That's right. At the end of the day, it's all about architecture. Architecture comes in various forms. You can have data integration architecture. You can have data architecture itself. There's program architecture. There's various organizational elements of architecture. But the mindset is architecture. The mindset is, I'm trying to take care of this, not for just this tactical moment in life, but I'm trying to put a stick in the ground and say, hey, I'm doing something that is actually going to be lasting. And that's what architecture should be about. It's, it's about lasting results. And so you want to build that bridge that you talked about with architecture. You don't want to have what I've heard called the accidental architecture that just sort of happens. It's all bottoms up. Nobody's ever attending to anything from the top end and looking at the bigger picture of things within an organization. I want my readers to be the ones that actually take that step and look sometimes at least at the bigger picture of the organization and what's going on and look for consolidation and expansion opportunities for information. And truly, it's all about architecture when you do that. The other excellent point that you make throughout the book is the importance of remembering that ultimately what we're trying to deliver is a return on investment to the business. One of my pet peeves is that some folks treat ROI like it's some form of alchemy or mystical sorcery that no one can quite make happen. And when you ask for ROI calculations or what we're going to get out of a particular information management investment, a lot of times the inability to have a clear answer to that really shouldn't surprise people why that makes business leaders hesitant to move forward with what could be a pretty big investment for information architecture. So you mentioned in the book that what information management should be all about is not some speculative or fun exploration of something but it has to be about the business. It has to have a goal and it has to have a well-defined ROI that we can deliver. Is there anything that you can share in terms of helping make that ROI more clear-cut to, to business leaders? Sure. You know, I think it's all fun too, by the way, Jim. You know, uh, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think what we do in information management is a lot of fun. We're working with data. We're working with something that the business cares about. I often say that those of us in this industry pick really well because it is a lot of fun. But at the same time, in order to have those real results on the business, you've got to impact the business in a certain way. And ultimately, business does come down to its cash flow. Now, it might be short-term cash flow, more or less tactical ROI, or it might be longer-term cash flow when you're trying to expand into new areas. You don't really know where you know, what the size of that bread box is, you know, but you know there's going to be return on investment ultimately if you go down that path. But it's not black magic or alchemy. It's simply returning more to the business than they invest in the project. And I know it's hard to sometimes draw lines between projects because we're all interdependent and that sort of thing. And nobody's trying to be Nostradamus here and, and be, you know, ultimately pre really precise about this. 
But the idea is to move forward in directions that will ultimately result in more sales for the business or reduce cost to the business, which if you're strictly focusing on that, that's more or less you're going for a total cost of ownership flavor, if you will, of return on investment. But my book doesn't hit people over the head too much with that. That is sort of flavored throughout the book. But I think that a lot of the domains that I cover I cover from the perspective of not a vendor perspective where they always talk about this or that product is going to you know, do all these great and wonderful things for the business. I'm more realistic because I'm a practitioner. And so I've been under the commands, I guess if you might say, of deliver ROI to this business so much. And that is really what turns a lot of projects and, and gets things going. So, you know, as you mentioned, if you don't speak that language at all, you're kind of hamstrung a, a little bit. So, you know, I try to flavor that throughout the book, but really, how do you get ROI from data virtualization? Or how do you get ROI from a graph database? Well, you can. You can from projects that use that technology. And so that's kind of where it all comes from. I want people to be successful that read the book. And so in order to be successful, they have to do the things that will get them that success within the business. I definitely agree. There are just some people, especially with the big data analytics being such a buzzworthy trend at the moment, some people trying to browbeat folks into, well, you should just do it because everybody's doing it and it it must have some value to the organization because everyone's doing it. And that type of reasoning is, is not a valid argument. So being able to put something into more tangible terms, and like you said, you might not always be able to do it, But you did mention at one point in the book about the Amazon case study. They found for every 100 milliseconds of latency, they lost 1% revenue. Now, that's a very tangible number that you can put in front of the business. Instead of just saying, oh, we have to reduce latency, it has to be as low as possible just because (laughs) is much different than we're losing money because of latency and being able to put an actual number on that. And that's a very different discussion to have with business leaders. And you're not going to get very far in terms of investment in a a long-term goal if you can't make some type of a really strong business case. That's right. And big data is, for whatever reason, very susceptible to this way of thinking. I think there's a lot of value in big data projects that are plugged in with the goals of the business. I've seen that take these businesses in in new directions that I know is going to ultimately mean their success. I mean, now I think is the time to get on the big data bandwagon and exploit this new area to the very best of your abilities, something that is going to be with us for a while. It is going to be lasting. And we need to be doing this for our business. But to to just do it for the sake of doing it, maybe you're learning a technology which is good long-term for the business, but projects that are just geared that way are ultimately doomed to failure because they're just not going to ultimately find a way into production in these shops. And if you can't make it into production, you're really not doing very much. So I say, you know, it can be fun and we should be breaking into many emerging technologies. Heck, my whole book is just about emerging technologies and things that have come on the scene in the last five to 10 years that we really need to be aware of. But at the same time, we want to gear that towards business objectives. Yeah, if it can't get into production, it's not going to produce results for the business. I don't want to get too much into big data in this discussion, but I really like a point you made. It said that you believe that the notion of big versus not big will go away soon because it's all data begging to be turned into information. That's right. And the worlds are colliding, too. 
these big data projects that originate in business departments or maybe even in a, in a pocket of IT somewhere that grow and grow is at a certain point, they do need to be integrated with the, if I can call it that, legacy of the business where in the relational world, we have all this data accumulated over years and years and years, and it's very accessible and it's very clean. And that's the data that we need to integrate big data with. And so the worlds are coming together really fast, especially in those companies that are recognizing the value of information and really trying to make a success of big data, really trying to gear big data towards business objectives. Exactly. The worlds need to collide. Again, Amazon's is so easy to fall back on, but looking at what other customers were purchasing, if, if no one ever made a purchase based on the recommendation engine, the recommendation engine would go away. It's not just spitting out information for the sake of it. It's actually trying to connect the dots between previous transactions and current and potential future transactions. Or maybe it's something from social media sentiment analysis. Maybe at a high level, a broad general sentiment about your company might have some applicability to you. But if you want to change your customer-facing applications based on that social sentiment, you've got to make sure that the people who are talking about you on social media are actually your customers by linking them in some way to your internal customer master data management implementation. And if you can't bridge those two worlds, then the value proposition of big data analytics falls down. Exactly. And those types of projects are helped tremendously by having a great master data management store where you do have that master data. And I encourage my readers in the book, in the chapter on master data management, to think big about master data management. I think it has a very strong place, very strong play within information architecture today. And that's where you can have a multifaceted profile of your customers that might include some external data. Very often it does include data that originates outside of the company, like you say on Twitter, also in syndicated data marketplaces and that sort of thing. So we're all kind of early days on that, but you do talk about there is something that is of a tremendous long-term benefit to companies that can get it right. You're listening to OCDQ Radio, a vendor-neutral podcast about data quality and its related disciplines from the Obsessive Compulsive Data Quality blog produced by Jim Harris. Visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast to find ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio and get links to the blog post summaries of every episode. You'll also find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, if you're interested in being a guest on the show or if you would like to discuss sponsorship opportunities. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast for more information about OCDQ Radio. And now, back to the show. On this episode of OCDQ Radio, we are talking with William McKnight, author of the new book, Information Management, Strategies for Gaining a Competitive Advantage with Data. William, sometimes when people start to talk about the new information age and things like big data and NoSQL and predictive analytics and all of these other relatively newer technologies, some people seem to fear that we're obviating the need for human beings to be involved in the day-to-day -day business. And in your book, William, you made the great point that information by itself cannot think. And that even though we have access to more information and through evolving information architecture, we can continue to provide good information to the business. It's not going to take the place of the skills and experience of the business analyst. If anything else, it's actually going to make them even more necessary. In the information age, there is still the need for the human from your perspective, correct? 
Oh, absolutely. That's a big theme of mine in my consulting, in my book, in my talks, etc. That's a big theme of mine. We're forging change throughout the organization. And as we do that, those of us that are forging those changes, we need to attend to the human qualities that are part of it. And that's why I have a chapter in the book on organizational change management. It's called Soft Skills or the Hard Skills. And we often leave that behind. And we do that at peril because that's something that's very important. Your data is going to be taken a step further for you as time goes on. This is only natural. And so you're going to be asked to do more with that information, take it further. And in most organizations today, what that simply means is that you're going to have more time to analyze data than you ever did because before you had to spend 80% of your time gathering the data. And that's when we could turn our brain into half mode and go out and get the spreadsheet and, and glue it into this access database and call this person for this other piece of information and da 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 until finally we have something that we can step back and look at for five minutes and make a decision with. But now the times have changed and all of that process is getting automated. And with business intelligence, the information is coming in a more refined form to the knowledge worker. And the knowledge worker has to be able to take that forward. I'm not saying everybody has to be a data scientist, which I do talk about in the book, but there, there are going to be those that are going to be able to, to do enormous things with that data and take the business in far grand direction. And those will be our data scientists. But we're all going to be asked to do more data science. And so there's responsibilities there on everybody in the business ecosystem as a result of the tremendous change that's happening in information management. It used to be that information and the technology that supported was somewhat the purview of a centrally located IT department responsible for managing the technology and the information and the other job functions throughout the organization weren't as focused on that. But nowadays, everyone is walking around with a smartphone with more computing power than what first took man to the moon in the 1960s. So everyone is using information, everyone is using technology, regardless of what their job title is or what division of the company that they work in. And now that information and technology are no longer considered alien concepts to anyone, now everyone is using them. And like you said, it definitely does not mean that at any time we're going to automate the human out of the process. In fact, it's the opposite. Now that we're all responsible for it, we're all expected to do our jobs better on a daily basis by using information more effectively and using technology more effectively. That's right, Jim. It also means that who I consult to is no longer strictly somebody that's in central IT. It, it can be someone in the business and doing technology functions but doesn't even have an IT title. Organizations are beginning to disintermediate this notion of central IT does everything. It's not agile enough for them. And so we have to move with that reality. It means that the people making the decisions about whether or not to use Hadoop or data virtualization or cloud computing or graph databases or any of the other things that I talk about in my book, it, they're really all over the organization. And so this information about information management really needs to be distributed throughout the organization because that's where the decisions are made. One of the decisions I want to make right now is to shift this discussion into information about my favorite topic, data quality. And in your book, William, you provide a very short and poignant definition stating that 
Data quality is the absence of intolerable defects. That's right. It, it just reflects that you're not ever going to get to perfect data quality, and you should not be striving to bring your data quality to some sort of book or external standard, or you shouldn't be asking your consultants, well, what level of quality should our data be at? It's all up to the stakeholders, really. And I try to forge a program of data stewardship to define the stakeholder and define what that level should be. That's where the definition really should be held. It should be held to that standard. And that standard comes in various forms, and every organization is going to be a little bit different. We all start with we want 100% perfect data quality, but there's a value proposition to data quality. And uh, there are good business reasons that once we peel back this onion, we find out that those are reasons that we want to keep in place in the business because it optimizes some other aspect. Maybe it's very fast turnaround time on transactions. So I just look at it all as a value proposition. And this just reflects the real worldness, I guess, uh, of the book. It's not a theoretical book that theorists should be using to beat people over the head with. It's a practical book that you can wrap your arms around and say, I can put this to work in my company. We have intolerable defects here. What are they? Who defines whether they're tolerable or intolerable? And I go through 10 to 12 different categories of where these data quality defects will come from. That's what needs to get mapped up against your real data to determine where you're at and how you want to move forward. I really like that distinction, the absence of intolerable defects, not the absence of defects. Because sometimes data quality is too disconnected from business context. For an example, if someone runs some analysis on a database and finds out that 50% of the postal addresses are invalid, oh, wow, we have a data quality problem, right? No, not necessarily. Is anyone using that particular data source's postal address for anything? We could be looking at a data source that's supporting online commerce where email address is actually the customer point of contact. So we could launch a project and spend some money to improve the quality of postal address, maybe even go all the way to temporary perfection and make sure that all of the postal addresses are valid. But if we don't need to do that from a business standpoint, then it's a tolerable defect that we have some invalid postal addresses because it's not a business impact. And the point that you make in your book, William, is that the proper data quality management is a value proposition that ultimately falls short of perfection, but it should provide more value than it costs. And I think too often we don't stop to determine, well, what is the value that we will incur from the cost of improving the quality of data and that value has to be greater than cost, or it's not a business-justified endeavor to try to improve the quality of that data. That's right. All these platforms I talk about, you can have all sorts of data in there, but if it's not of enough quality at the right level, not perfection, but at the right level, not intolerable, you might as well not have done anything because data quality really underlies all data. Big data, too. And that's what I encourage, looking at the data quality dimension to everything that we do, looking at how do we leverage this data for maximum effect. And so we want to bring data quality into all data that we store. Sometimes I think people try to turn that argument around from the potentiality standpoint of saying, well, we have this data that could potentially be used for something. So shouldn't we make sure that the data quality is as close to perfect as possible in the event that we need to use it? 
And I, I've never liked that line of reasoning because, again, it's disconnected from any business context. And you make the point in the book that the evaluation of data quality issues has got to be a hunt for specific data quality violations, not a general hunt for general data flaws. That's right. This happens with data architecture as well. So many people are eager to just ask the vendor or the analyst or kind of turn it over to someone else and say, what should we be doing? Where should we be at? Without sharing the knowledge about where the business is and where it needs to go and where things stand today. Those things are important in that picture because we're trying to drive it not towards some external standard, but we're trying to drive it towards an internal standard of business growth and return on investment. And so that's the perspective really to take not only on data quality, but also on data architecture. Well, William, this has been an excellent discussion. And I know that there are lots of topics that are covered in your book that we didn't have time to get to, including advancements in the world of databases not just limited to NoSQL options, but also advancements in relational databases as well. You also touch upon data stream processing, data virtualization, and the operational and analytical aspects of big data. Is there another dimension of information management that you cover in your book that I forgot to mention? The other dimension that permeates all of this is the cloud. That's really not to be overlooked either, that a lot of these platforms actually have very viable offerings in the cloud. And I also encourage everybody to have a cloud strategy or at least some principles around how they'll make decisions to not shut themselves out of cloud software today. Not everything's going to be appropriate for the cloud, but not everything's appropriate for Hadoop. Not everything's appropriate for the data warehouse either. That's okay. But that doesn't mean that we don't have to have a strategy, a standard, an approach for all of these things and more. And really, that's what the book is about, helping you get to that place where you can make sound decisions. Well, a sound decision that anyone can and should make is to pick up a copy of the book, Information Management, Strategies for Gaining a Competitive Advantage with Data. We have had the great fortune today of speaking with the book's author, William McKnight. William, it was great talking with you today on OCDQ Radio. Great to talk with you, Jim. Thank you for listening to OCDQ Radio. Go to ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast, where you can find links to the blog post summaries of every episode, ways to subscribe to OCDQ Radio via iTunes and a non-iTunes RSS feed, and a link to listen to OCDQ Radio on your mobile device with Stitcher Smart Radio. And you will find ways to contact me, Jim Harris, via Twitter, LinkedIn, and email. So be sure to visit ocdqblog.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening to OCDQ Radio. And until next time, may the data quality be with you, always.